Everyone's familiar with the October Revolution, itself a part of the larger Russian Revolution that over the course of some six years between 1917 and 1923 toppled the old monarchical order in favor of a communist state, one that would last until its ultimate downfall in 1991. Still fewer people know that there was an earlier revolution that took place in Russia, one that predates the more famous one by its nearly a century. Interestingly enough, it too also had a monthly name, due in large part to when it took place, the Decemberist Revolt. But what exactly set the stage for this lesser-known but no less important revolution? What factions were involved? And what, if anything, did it do for the Russian people? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and Dobro Pozhalovat. Welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. By the 19th century, most of Europe's monarchies had either been replaced with republican forms of government or had limited the monarch's power by giving it back to the people through the drafting of new laws, constitutions, or else the introduction of a role such as president or prime minister. The one exception was the Russian Empire, whose emperors, or tsars as they're known in Russian, a take on the name Caesar, still held absolute power. In addition, serfdom, a practice unseen in the rest of the continent since the end of the Middle Ages, reigned supreme. This concept saw laborers, or serfs, toiling in the fields of wealthy lords and landowners, with no chance of ever scaling the socio-economic ladder. In short, the practice was nothing more than glorified slavery, with peasant families often bound to a lord in his land for generations. Though the Tsar at the time, Alexander I, had initially championed liberal reforms, it was the Napoleonic Wars in the early years of the 19th century that single-handedly brought them to a halt. With the French emperor's push into Russia proper, the Tsar abandoned any such pretense, instead cracking down on those self-same oppressive policies, much to the dismay of those who'd come to support and expect such changes. Most notably of these were the Russian generals, who'd seen firsthand the struggles of peasant soldiers within their ranks and were quick to stand in solidarity with them by flouting courtly manners and practices. This included wearing their military swords to dances, indicating a refusal to participate in any dancing, a major social event of the period, as well as focusing on scholarly pursuits and academic study. These renegade generals took their cues from other European reform movements of the day, as well as the ideals of the American Revolution and the United States Constitution, and it wasn't long before these military leaders began organizing a faction of their own. In what can best be described as an early form of mission statement, one of the would-be reformers, Pavel Pestil, listed the reasons for liberal reforms in Russia as follows. Quote, the desirability of granting freedom to the serfs was considered from the very beginning. For that purpose, a majority of the nobility was to be invited in order to petition the emperor about it. This was later thought of on many occasions, but we soon came to realize that the nobility could not be persuaded. Unquote. From this, a constitution was drafted by Nikita Muravyov, himself an officer of the Imperial Guards, which was closely modeled after that of the United States. But while slavery was still allowed in that country, the Russian generals longed to abolish the practices of both slavery and serfdom immediately throughout the empire when given the chance. In their own words, they only approved of the American revolutionary model, not the federal one, and such influences would go on to spawn a secret society known as the Union of Salvation. The Union of Salvation, or the Union of the Faithful and True Sons of the Fatherland, was founded in 1816. Established by several officers within the Imperial Guards, Muravyov among them, it gained its revolutionary footing, if you will, with the addition of Pavel Pestel, who brought with him supporters of a more radical sort. Pestel's joining of the secret society's ranks was backed by the support of one Ivan Yakushkin, a military officer and educator who planned to assassinate the Tsar, even before the generals could stage their revolt. When they learned of this, Yakushkin voluntarily left the order. In his place, the more liberal thinking, and decidedly less violent Muravyov, stepped up to draft a new charter, devoid of such revolutionary actions. 
It was this charter that gave rise to a sister organization that ultimately merged with the Union of Salvation, the Union of Prosperity. But their work was put on hold following a mutiny in a regiment within the Imperial Russian Army in 1820, Deciding to suspend all activities so as to avoid any unwanted attention from the imperial government, the society broke into two factions who met in secret, one in the north, based in St. Petersburg, and one in the south, based in the garrison town of Tulchin in what's now Ukraine. Pestel headed the northern society, while leadership of the southern society was shared amongst three officers, Muravyev, Eugene, or Yevgeny in Russian, Obolensky, and Sergei Petrovich Turbetskoy. While both organizations shared a desire for change in Russia, it wasn't long before their approaches to it began to differ. The Northern Society, for example, favored a British-style constitutional monarchy, in which the Tsar was reduced to a symbolic figurehead and executive power was placed in the hands of a prime minister, in a republican form of government by and for the people. Serfdom was to be abolished once and for all. For the most part, the Southern Society agreed with these terms, though they differed in their stance on the monarchy, which they wanted to be completely dismantled, along with the redistribution of half of the land to the peasants, with the other half being kept under state ownership. For a while, these two factions laid low, waiting for the opportune moment to leap into action. But, as life and history have proven time and again, nothing ever goes according to plan. On December 1st, 1825, Tsar Alexander I died, leaving his brother, Konstantin Pavlovich, as the presumed heir to the throne, with the royal guards even going so far as to swear allegiance to this new monarch. Konstantin had, in the past, made his support for reforms in Russia quite apparent, so the two secret societies breathed a sigh of relief at this news. Konstantin, however, didn't want the responsibility, and quickly, to say nothing of publicly, renounced the crown. Instead, Alexander's other, younger sibling, Nicholas, stepped forward to rule. No sooner had he done so did the Northern Society scramble to meet, in secret, in an attempt at convincing regimental leaders not to swear allegiance to Nicholas, for the new emperor would prove to be no better than his elder brother at implementing reforms. In the meantime, the society elected Sergei Trubetskoy as the interim ruler. With this act, the Decemberist revolt was well underway. A few weeks later, on December 26th, a group of officers commanding some 3,000 men, including those from the Grenadier Lifeguards Regiment, the Lifeguards Moscow Regiment, as well as the Naval Equipage of the Guard, met in Senate Square in St. Petersburg, the then Russian capital, where they publicly refused to acknowledge the ascension of Nicholas to the throne. There they waited for the rest of the troops stationed in the city to join them, but they never came. To make matters worse, Trubetskoy fled the coup in the midst of all the action, as well as his second-in-command. Thinking quickly, they replaced Trubetskoy with Yevgeny Obolensky, one of the Northern Society's leaders. What ensued was a tense standoff in the square in front of the Senate building between the aforementioned 3,000 belligerents and an even greater force some 9,000 strong, the latter of whom were loyal to Nicholas and the crown. Nothing of note took place until the new emperor dispatched Count Mikhail Miloradovich to attempt to negotiate with the rebels. But during his speech, the count was shot by Officer Pyotr Karkovsky, resulting in the count's death. In the chaos that ensued, a squad of grenadiers, led by Lieutenant Nikolai Panov, stormed the famed Winter Palace, but failed to seize it, at which time they hastily retreated. After countless attempts at negotiating with the rebels, Nicholas ordered the Empress's elite Chevalier Guard Regiment, a cavalry regiment, to charge the rebel forces. But when the poor horses and their riders kept slipping on the square's icy cobblestones, they retreated in disarray. With no option left, the new Tsar had to, quite literally, bring in the big guns. Three artillery pieces were brought in and fired on the crowd, to devastating effect. 
While several of the rebels ran, countless more were injured or killed in the melee. Some retreated to the Neva River to the north, which had frozen solid in the harsh winter conditions. But cannon fire and ice don't exactly mix well, as you could imagine, and where the cannonballs failed to strike retreating rebels, they were perfect for breaking the river's icy surface, resulting in the drowning of several more. Thus the Decemberist revolt came to an end. In the days that followed, the northern society all but disintegrated. The southern society, on the other hand, did not receive word of the Senate Square incident until some two weeks later, in the opening days of 1826. Pavel Pestil, too, was arrested under suspicion of treason, and several other Decemberist leaders were rounded up as well. On January 15, 1826, those organizers who hadn't been killed in all the actions stood trial. Pestil, along with Kakovsky, the latter of whom you'll recall had assassinated Count Mikhail Miloradovich, were sentenced to hanging, which they were, quite publicly, in Senate Square itself. The rest were all sent to Siberia, where they were condemned to isolation from the rest of Russian society and forced to perform manual labor. While the Decemberist revolt had been a failed one, its echoes will be felt nearly a century later, when the October Revolution plunged the country once again into chaos in the final months of the Great War, World War I. Only this time, a communist state would be established in its place, not the constitutional monarchy or republic the officers of both the northern and southern societies had dreamt of for so long. The monarchy wasn't so much abolished as it was slaughtered, with the entire imperial family essentially being wiped out by the Red Army, that which was sympathetic to the communist cause. A Russian republic wouldn't come into being until 1991, when the last vestiges of communism fell. Though it took nearly 170 years, the dreams of those selfsame officers would finally be realized. And I'd say that the Russian people have the Decemberists to thank, in great part, for the current form of government they live under today. A warm and resounding spasiba, thank you for listening. The Decemberist Revolt has proven to be quite influential in both Russian society and abroad, with the Portland-based indie rock band The Decemberists naming themselves in honor of those selfsame gentlemen officers who staged it. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more like it in the future, then please consider supporting it monthly. Just visit podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company that's all one word and click the support button which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget remember listening and sharing also help me out too so please do so wherever you get your podcasts join me again next week for a fascinating look at an oft-forgotten civilization in one of the world's wettest climates only on the history loves company podcast because history is shaped by all of us this is chester sakamoto signing off see you next week <laughs>